0: Well, if you create something, you own it. If you create something, you have, you know more than anyone what you made it for, what were the purposes you made it for and why. If you create something, you have big word authority over that thing to do with whatever you want. Why? Because you made it, you own it, you thought it up, you designed it, you built it for whatever purpose or purposes you created it for. You have the freedom to not create it at all, you also have the freedom to shelve it after you have created it or create something else in its place. In Christianity, one of the most profound theological truths for us to get our human brains around is that God is our sovereign creator. Genesis 1.1 may be the most important verse in the whole Bible. And of course, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And it's been said, if you do not, do not understand Genesis 1-1, you probably will not understand the rest of the Bible. Therefore, that one verse puts God as king and creator. Therefore, God has complete and total authority over every single aspect of his creation, including us, human beings. God created each one of us in his image And and continues his complete and total authority over us. And particularly, as Romans 9 will tell us, our salvation. God's sovereignty extends to our salvation. The need, of course, for sinful human beings to be reconciled to a perfectly holy God. How does that salvation actually work? The biblical answer is this. God works it. God works it from beginning to end. God owns it. God works salvation and God works judgment and all of this for his glory. And therefore, one of the hardest questions of our faith is this. Why does he work this salvation for some and not others? And the only answer that I can give you is this. I don't know. We don't know. God knows. God knows. God saves some. And even allow some to go to judgment ultimately for this, the same reason he does everything else for his glory. And so today, Paul is going to take us through some deep theological waters in Romans chapter 9. If you are, are, have your Bibles and if you're not there already, turn over to Romans chapter 9. At least I remember to mute myself before I coughed so I didn't blow your ear, ears out. Last week, we finished up our deep dive into chapter 8 in our mini-series on assurance, which is the sure and firm hope that God will fulfill His promises. Through faith in Jesus, He promised us there's no condemnation. He will sustain us in our growth and holiness, and His sovereignty is our ultimate assurance. And this week, Paul is going to dig much deeper into the nature of that sovereignty as it is related to our salvation. And let's look again at Romans chapter nine and verse one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears bears me witness with the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You can hear Paul's heart in this, can't you? And he tells them, he, right up front, that how sincere and honest he is being. He tells them this is an issue of his conscience, his conscience is bothered by this. And Christians, we should never, ever uh, disregard our consciences when they're bothered. Paul tells them that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For who and for why? He answers the, the sorrow and the great unceasing, unceasing anguish is for his brothers or his kinsmen, meaning his fellow Jewish brothers, Israel. And he goes so far as to say that he wishes that he himself were cut off from Christ. He wishes that he himself were accursed in order that they would realize who Jesus is. Of course, Paul knows that it doesn't work like this. You can't give up your salvation for someone else. But Paul, we see Paul's heart. He's agonizing over them. If I could give it to them just so that they could be saved, I would do that. That's how much I am in despair about this. If you are new to all of this and the Bible itself, before conversion to Christianity, Paul, of course, was Saul. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the, the rabbi and the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the PhD of PhDs, to the extent so much that he violently persecuted the new church of Jesus Christ, and was uh, magnificently and suddenly and dramatically converted to Christianity by Jesus Christ himself, and the scales fell off, and he realized That Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul went, or Saul at that time, went from persecuting the church, its biggest enemy, to its greatest pastor, theologian, and church planner. And so Paul knows all about the Jewish religion, and he agonizes in his heart over his brother's And Christianity, of course, still remains intimately connected to the Jewish religion. I mean, three-quarters of our Bibles are the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. The New Covenant is built on the foundation of the Old Covenant. God's law reveals the character of God himself, and therefore, the Old Covenant finds its complete and total fulfillment in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. If there is anyone who should be able to see this, Paul says, it's you guys. It's my brother's. Of all people, you should be able to get this. He says in verse 4, they have the adoption. They were adopted as God's nation. From nothing they were created. They have the glory. They have the covenants. They have the law. They have the worship. They have the temple. They have the promises. They have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And from their own people, he says. From your own bloodline. Jesus, the Messiah, came from. Above all people, guys, you should know that Jesus is, quick deity claim he throws in there, that Jesus is God. You should know this. You should recognize this, but you don't. You refuse to. And he's agonizing over this. If there's anybody that should be able to put the pieces together, it's you guys. He makes his heart sick with grief. People refusing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, but guys, we know that people refusing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah is nothing new. People continue to this day. It always blows my mind when I think about the fact that there were people actually that heard Jesus himself preach with their own ears, saw the miracles that he did, and yet still walked away and went, nah, I'm not convinced. It's amazing. makes me feel a whole lot better about my preaching. They listened to Jesus and they didn't even believe it, right? But people rejecting Jesus is nothing new. And Paul goes on to explain a little bit of that. Look at verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul continues, this is actually part of the way it works, guys. It's not as though the word of God had failed. It's not as though there was anything wrong with Jesus' preaching or anything wrong with the disciples and what they're doing. It's certainly nothing wrong with the gospel. There's nothing wrong. The word of God doesn't fail. But there are still people that will not believe it and reject it. And he, he, again, draws upon the example of Israel to prove his point, He says, not everyone who were in the family line of Israel were actually Israel. Not everyone, just because you had on your birth certificate that you can trace yourself somehow back to Abraham, were you a legit child of God. He said it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work through bloodline. Just because you can say, yep, I'm from Israel, does not mean that you're an actual child of God. He says it works through the promise. It doesn't work through the flesh. He says in verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the family line who are children of God, but rather the children of the promise who actually are children of God. And he uses two examples from Israel to prove this point. First, Abraham and Isaac, and then Jacob and Esau. Look at verse 9. He says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Abraham was the one whom God called to himself to start the nation of Israel. He promised Abraham that all of the nation would be blessed through you. He promised Abraham that he would have the descendants that would be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. But there was only one problem with that. Abraham and his wife had no kids. The other problem was that they were getting pretty old. And so it didn't look good. And so Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hand. And they decided in a very ill-fated plan that Abraham would father a child through one of Sarah's uh, female servants, which was not the plan of God because God said, guess what? About this time next year, you will have a son. And this is all from Genesis. I put all the references to Genesis and other things in your outlines. There's way too many verses to go here today. We'll never be able to eat hamburgers if I go all the way to all of these references. So I put them there so you can look at them later. You can look at them in care groups. But back in Genesis 18, he prophesied and he told Abraham that, yes, you will have a son. But Abraham then took matters into his own hands and fathered a child outside of Sarah. And that child's name was Ishmael. This was their plan. This wasn't God's plan. God said that Abraham's own son would be the heir, not Ishmael. Eventually, Sarah and Abraham did have baby Isaac who was God's choice to be the heir to the promise. But it was Isaac. It was not Ishmael. Likewise, with Jacob, which is Isaac's son, you uh, remember Rebekah, Isaac's wife was pregnant with twins. But God didn't choose both of those twins. He only chose one of those twins to continue the promise. He says that Jacob will be the heir, which is strange because as twins, Jacob was actually younger than Esau. And in tradition, it would be the oldest son who would continue on the family line. But here in our passage, it says, no, just like I told you, the younger, or the older rather, will serve the younger. And so he makes it clear, it was Jacob, it was not going to be Esau. And then he says something remarkable and shocking, and he quotes the prophet Malachi in verse 13. He says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's super strong language there. I mean, does that actually mean that God hated Esau? Yes, it does. But we have to separate our own hate from the hate of God, right? When we have hate, our hate is filled with largely what? Emotion. Lots of anger, lots of sin, lots of pride. We are fully capable of hating people, and that is a sin. There can be no sin in God. So God's hatred is not an emotional, prideful hatred. When God says hatred, it is a holy hatred. And it actually means more of rejection than just, just emotional malice towards someone. And so God says, yes, I have hated Esau in the sense that I have completely rejected him. He is not my heir. And actually, We will go to that passage in Malachi so that you can see the seriousness of which God spoke about this. This is Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Watch this. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, which were the descendants of Esau, says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, No, they may build, but I will tear them down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." And so we see that not only does God oppose and reject Esau and his descendants, he is actively waging war against them as the enemies of Israel. And so before we blow by that and try to get God off the hook and say, well, it can't really mean hate. We're not supposed to hate. We first have to remember God's not a human. He doesn't think like we do. But yes, it does mean that he hated Esau and he completely rejected Esau. Why? Because it was Isaac. So what's Paul's point here by using these examples? If we backtrack to verse 11, we'll see some of the depths of this. Look at verse 11 again. Though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad in order for God's purpose of election to continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul cannot be more clear about this. He's like, when did I choose Jacob over Esau? Before they were even born. Before they had a chance to do anything, good or bad. And so there can be no works, there can be no merit, there can be no nothing that anyone brings to this occasion because they're not even born yet. They're still in the womb of Rebekah. And the Lord says, that's when I chose Jacob over Esau. Why? So that my purposes of election... Will continue to stand for my glory. He's saying, God's word has not failed just because some people have rejected me or rejected Jesus. This has always been the way that it worked from when I chose Israel and even some of Israel to be my children and be legit. I never said that I was going to save all of Israel, is what God is saying. It's my sovereign choice to save some of Israel, like Abraham like Isaac and not Ishmael, like Jacob and not Esau. and actually has nothing to do with what they do and everything to do with who God is. Here's the first point. God chooses some for salvation. God chooses some for salvation. As Paul said in verse 11, this is the doctrine of election. It's a biblical doctrine. And we can see clearly that this passage is talking about not just election, but unconditional election. Election. Election is not something that we're all going to endure a year from November, right? It means a choice. It means something that God is choosing. Here's what one uh, biblical dictionary defined it as. It's a biblical word to speak of God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's good purposes. In general terms, election can refer to God's choosing of persons for a type of service, While in a more particular sense, election refers to God's choosing of persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. God not only elects people, chooses people to do things for him as believers, but before you even get there, God knows who are his. God chooses people to open their eyes to the message of the gospel. And election is seen all over the Bible from cover to cover. We've already covered a few examples. God chose Israel. And he chose some from Israel. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that he chose Israel. It was nothing of what they had to do. It was nothing they could offer. They didn't even exist yet. They weren't even born. God created them. We saw that he chose Abraham. We saw that he chose Isaac. We saw that he chose Jacob. The New Testament speaks of the unconditional election of people who are in Christ, also known as the elect. If you are a Christian today and you are here and you have understood the gospel, you are one of the elect. Because God has opened your eyes to the gospel. We see it in uh, passing in places like 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Isma, Asia and Bissania. Election is part of the foreknowledge of God. We saw it back in verse 29 a couple weeks ago of Romans chapter 8. Where he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his will. And 2 Timothy 2.19 simply says, the Lord knows who are his. Unconditional election in the reformed Calvinistic tradition means this. Wayne Grudem helps us here. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Unconditional election was confirmed by the early church fathers, but probably none more famous than Augustine. He says, God has appointed them to be regenerated before they die physically, whom he predestined to eternal life as the most merciful giver of grace. This is completely against Augustine's opponent Pelagius who said that God will choose those whom he's pretty sure will choose God too. That's a heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches, right? Because what does that do? That makes unconditional election conditional election. God's then in service of us, and the creator doesn't work like that. Right. There's really no other options when you look at this. There's either unconditional election, which is clearly taught here in Romans 9. There's conditional election, which whatever, however that works is going to put God in our service. Or there's universalism. God's going to save everybody, which is that is not the case either. If we go with Pelagius' view of of conditional election, Pelagius' view that that God looks in us and sees some sort of goodness and some sort of something that he wants and has to have on his team, then what we're doing there is seeding what is one of the most dangerous uh, theologies in the church, which is man-centered theology, that God exists for me. That I've done something for God, that God has to have. That then God's job is to make my life comfortable and happy and all of that stuff. And when God doesn't do that, I shake my fist at him and say, what are you doing? It's a plague on the church today. A few things about unconditional election. Three things quickly. It's unconditional, it's irresistible, and it is the work of God alone. And of course, first, it is unconditional. It is based nothing on our own merit or work. It can't be. Why not? This is where you have to put it very quickly, the doctrine of total depravity next to it. Because Paul just told us all over the place, all through Romans 3, 4, and 5, that there is nothing good in us. There's no one who does good, not even one. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what do we have to bring to this equation? Nothing. That's why it has to be unconditional. That's why there's nothing we bring and nothing we merit. We are totally depraved and therefore unable to bring anything. We are unable. We are spiritually dead until God calls us to himself. Paul confirms the unconditional nature of election here in chapter 9. And we also have to remember, just like Paul said, not all of Israel is Israel, right? We know, sure, just not everybody that walks through the doors of a church are actually Christians. Not everybody that even professes or claims to be a Christian sometimes is a legit Christian. We know through the testimony of faith, we know through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know through God causing saints to persevere. So first, it is unconditional. Second, it is irresistible. Just as uh, Jesus said in John 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and that he will lose none of whom the Father has given him. All whom the Father has elected to salvation will be saved. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. If God has chosen you for salvation, you will be saved. Calvin puts it this way. We learn from the apostles' words that the salvation of believers is founded entirely on the decree of divine election. The privilege is procured not by works, but a free calling. We also have a specimen or an example of the thing set before us. Esau and Jacob were brothers begotten of the same parents within the same womb, yet not yet born. We know that this is God's work and God's alone. And if you were here today and you were a Christian, and this is so evangelically countercultural, right? But you're not a Christian because you asked Jesus into your heart. You're a Christian because God saved you. You're a Christian because God God set his sights on you, and God drew you to himself, and he opened your eyes to the reality of your sin, and he gave you repentance and faith to believe in him. Yes, we place our faith in him, but even that faith is a gift from God. And third, this is the work of God alone. God is completely sovereign over all things, including salvation. The truth here, helps us in two ways. First, in our evangelism, and second, in our prayers. In our evangelism, right, when we have this view of of Romans 9, we are literally on a hunt for the elect. We literally preach the gospel to everyone we possibly can. This is really important. Without bias, without reservation, we don't look at somebody and go, "Eh, that dude's probably not elect. I'm going to pass. Can't know that. We proclaim the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ to every single person without bias. We send missionaries to every square inch of the world, right? And if they're elect, they will respond. Doesn't mean instantly, but they will respond eventually. What do they respond to? The preaching of the word, right? We know that they may not respond instantly, but they will respond one day. God will lose none of whom the Father has given him. And secondly, in our prayers. We pray for God to work his sovereign will to open up the eyes of the elect to the truth of their sin and the reality of Jesus as their savior. And to go a bit further than that, these things, sometimes we can get a little desperate and we'll talk about that in a little while and be like, well, why bother? Well, why bother? Because these things are the means that God uses to save his elect. The preaching of the word and our prayers. We pray for God to open up the eyes of his children. And for them to come to him, and that's the means of how he does it. I also know what some of you are thinking. If God elects some to be saved, does that mean he elects some to condemnation? And the short answer of that is yes. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's another classic Pauline tactic, right? The old, what shall we say then? We've seen this in 831 and other places. Paul anticipates the objection in the way that we might be tempted to feel that if God chooses some for salvation, that that means then he chooses other people for condemnation. And everything inside us just goes, that's not fair. Are you kidding me? That's what that means? That God chooses some for salvation and some for condemnation? And Paul responds, What do we say about this? Is that unjust? Is there any injustice on God's part? And he answers, By no means. We've come across that many times in Romans, right? By no means. Absolutely not. God forbid. Paul answers in the strongest of negative terms. He then draws on another Old Testament example from Exodus, where God said to Moses, which uh, Ned read for us, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, guess what? I will be compassionate to who I want to be compassionate to, because I'm God, and I'm king, and I'm free to do that. The context of this quote is from Exodus 33, just after the golden calf incident where God pours out his wrath against those who worship the golden idol. And as Moses was interceding for God to show mercy, God essentially says, Moses, I will spare whom I want to spare. I will show mercy on whom I want to show mercy, but I will punish on whom I want to punish. He gives another summary statement in verse 16. So then, it's all up to God. It's not human will or effort, but it's on God, our merciful God. And he proceeds to give yet another Old Testament example of God's sovereign choice. But this time, exclusively not for salvation, exclusively for judgment. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul gives the example of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, of course, who enslaved Israel for hundreds of years. God raised him up. In other words, God used Pharaoh to make a public display of something. He he served a purpose. And what was it? Paul tells us it was his power. God displayed his power in Pharaoh. But what did he do to do that? Well, God destroyed Pharaoh. God destroyed Pharaoh's army. God freed Pharaoh. Uh, Israel, from slavery. If you recall what that actually entailed, it was the plagues. Each one was worse than the next and ultimately culminated in the Passover and many, many children dying in Egypt. Paul pulls this quote from Exodus 9.16, which is in the midst of the seventh plague, which was hail. Moses tells Pharaoh this, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. So that, watch this, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Why did God choose Pharaoh for judgment? Why did God choose Pharaoh for condemnation? Why did God choose Pharaoh for his glory and displaying his power and showing his righteousness and freeing his people? In verse 18, of course, Paul gives another summary statement. God has mercy on whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. God doesn't make any apologies. I hope that's very, very clear in chapter 9. God doesn't make any apologies for being God. And I can't do that either, guys. I can't sit up here and sugarcoat this anyway. I have to preach what the text says. This is very difficult for us to understand. That's why I started this whole thing by saying, I don't know how this works in the secret counsels of God's will. But God tells us he works it like this. We have to realize that. I have to preach the word of God just as it is. And it is very clear. God chooses some that won't be saved. And even in that, he gets glory. Like he did when those Israelites whom he judged for the idolatry after the golden calf, like when he did when he judged Pharaoh. The whole world could see and the whole world could know that he is God. This is difficult for us. We might be tempted to think, well, if God has it all figured out, then Why does he even care if people reject him? After all, you know, there's predestination and program. They're all programmed to reject him anyway. They can't even come to him. All they can do is sin. So let me get this straight. He hasn't saved them. He won't save them. They sin, and then they get judged for that sin. That's terrible. That's not God. That's a monster. And Paul anticipates this objection. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or, Or for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Will the potter have no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy? which he prepared beforehand for his glory. Paul's not pulling any punches here, is he? He completely anticipates what, what some of us may be feeling right now and when we come in contact with this doctrine. Right? Why does God still care about sin? After all, I mean, if I'm not one of the elect, then I just can't, my, can't help myself. I'm pre-programmed to sin, and I can do nothing about it. And God still judges me for that? Yes, yes. And I can't do anything about it. Like, even if I wanted to come to Christ, I can't. I'm not elect. And we have to stop right there and realize that is completely incorrect. That God does not refuse anyone from coming to him. It's a completely incorrect and biblical understanding of the doctrine of election. And to respond, we have to consider two things. First, the authority of God as creator of the universe. And second, the universal sinfulness of our own mankind. First again, the authority of God as creator. And Paul himself answers this clearly. First of all, he pulls no punches. He responds in the manner required. He says, hold up. Who are you? Stop. Who are you to answer God like that? Who are you to object to this? He made you. He uses another metaphor to explain how ridiculous this is. It's like a potter who makes a clay pot. And then the pot says, you idiot. Why did you make me like this? I didn't have to make you at all. Why am I talking to a pot? Oh, why didn't you make? Why not you make it bigger? Why didn't you make a handle? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you use a different kind of clay? And he says, "Isn't that ridiculous?" Potter, Potter's not gonna He made a pot because he wanted to make a pot. He says, "It's his right if he wants to make from the same lump of clay something for dishonorable use or something for honorable use." It's my clay. I bought it. I can make whatever I want. I could make a restroom pot or I could make a cereal bowl. It doesn't matter. I did it. Paul's using this example just to, to kind of say the, the ridiculousness of us shaking our fists in the vision of the almighty God and say, what are you doing? Why would you do that? That's unfair. That's wrong. You get where he's going. God is the ultimate creator. He created each one of us, and he created each one of us for a very specific purposes and outcomes, and, a, and the way that it is, some for salvation and some, like Pharaoh, he used for judgment. And Paul continues. Let's look at 22 again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says very clearly that in fact, God has created some people that will experience his wrath for sin. And he does so to to display his power and glory. But in the meantime, God bears with those whom he has elected for judgment to live under the banner of his grace. They rise and they fall every day, breathing God's air. They sit under his sunshine on a beautiful fall day. They experience love. They experience good food. They experience all of the blessings of God's creation. God patiently enduring with them. And he elects them for judgment. In verse 23, he says, To make known the riches of his glory for those he elected for salvation. Those he prepared in advance to be for his glory as he saves them. God is creator. He makes everyone. Everything he does is for his glory. He gets glory when he saves whom he chooses, and he gets glory when he inflicts judgment on those who reject him. And God knows it all in advance. In fact, he planned it that way. So second point, I'll say this. God chose some for judgment. God chose some for salvation, and God chose some for judgment. This is the inescapable doctrine of double predestination. If God chooses some for salvation, then the flip side has to be true. He has to know and choose and elect some for judgment. This is based on God's status and authority as what? God. He knows those things. God, creator, king of every single human being. We don't understand this, and sometimes we protest, but we must heed Paul's warning here through the Holy Spirit. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Schreiner says this, Paul's response to the protester is this, how can finite, frail, and weak human beings venture to dictate to God how the world should be run? Who do we think we are that we presume to call God to account and pass judgment on him? God has chosen some for judgment, and this is from his authority as creator. But the second aspect that I mentioned a few minutes ago is we have to realize the universal sinfulness of all humanity. And this is where you have to put this doctrine together with this to understand this, right? Because this is not an isolation. It's not that God is going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and it's arbitrary. It's not like God is just sending some people to hell and choosing to send some other people to heaven. We have this unbiblical picture in our heads that God thinks on every single human being and arbitrarily and cruelly decides if they should go to heaven or hell, and there's nothing that they can say or do about that. Because it leaves one critical aspect of our universal sinfulness out of that equation, which is our wills, our desires. To be blunt, no one goes to hell unless they want to go there. If that sounds severe, think of it another way. Those who are elected to judgment are the ones who will reject Jesus Christ until the day they die. They want to reject Jesus Christ. They will continue to reject Jesus Christ. And God knows that. They love sin. They love the life of sin. They love their autonomy, big quotes, from God. And by logical deduction then, as we saw in chapter 6, they hate God. They reject God. God has called them his enemies. And they refuse to come to him. They refuse to bow the knee. They refuse to admit they're sinners. Why? Because they don't want to. That's what it comes down to. We preach the gospel to somebody. We invite them to respond to Jesus. And they say no. Why? Because they don't want to. They don't want to respond. And God knows that. If you've ever had an objection, again, where Paul destroys, like the one he destroys here, it says, who can argue with God's will? I mean, what if I wanted to come to faith? What if I really thought this was good and I I wanted to come to faith, but sadly, I'm not one of the elect, so I can't come to faith. That's not true. Here's the answer to that. If you ever come across that conversation, you ever come across that argument, and somebody says, well, I can't come to faith because I'm not one of the elect, say, try it. Drop to your knees right now and repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And if they're intellectually honest and they're going to continue along this program, they're going to say no. Why? Because they don't want to. But if they want to, they would. And if they did, God would know that. It goes to our wills. It goes to the universal sinfulness. We have to back this all up and see the universal sinfulness of all mankind, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all born sinful and separated from God. We are all bound for hell. When we are born, that's our default state, right? So it's not like God is going, okay, he's going to hell. He's not. No, we are all bound for hell. We need to look at this from the biblical perspective that God then saves some. And the fact that he saves a single person is a miracle. That's why we can call him gracious. That's why we can call him good. When God elects some for judgment, the reality is that he isn't doing anything to them. He doesn't have to do anything to us. If we refused Christ, we're headed for hell. We've been headed for hell since the moment we were born. What does God do? Essentially, nothing. Paul said it in Romans 1, right? He gives them over to their sin. He doesn't do anything. He passes them over. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he just lets them continue. You want a life without me? Okay. There you go. So it's not like he intervenes and says, you're going to hell. No, everybody's going to hell. But he intervenes and saves some out of his mercy. He's passing over them and leaving them in their state of sin. He gave them what they wanted, a life without him. He left them in their default state. God doesn't make them sin or prevent them from coming to him. Instead, he leaves them in their sin, and that's what their hearts want anyway. This is actually a display of God's glory and justice because, in order to be just, God has to punish sin. He has to judge those who reject him as king and refuse to submit to his authority. And what is super hard for us to understand is that God gets glory in that judgment. He has to, because he has to be true to his nature. It comes down to God's glory, which again is his purpose in doing everything. He chose some for salvation and some for judgment. But guys, let's, let's just camp on the truth that it is completely miraculous that God saves some, that God saves any of us. There are some that he will draw to himself and give them a new heart to seek him. And so here's the big idea. God's glory is displayed by electing some to salvation and some to judgment. Both work for his glory. We can't make apologies for God. I can't soften this word. It's about the glory of God. And Paul clearly tells us this morning that God gets glory when he elects some to salvation and some to judgment. And our our flesh cries out, that's not fair. And again, I would caution us with that statement. You don't want fair. Fair means everybody goes to hell. That's what fair means, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't want fair. It's grace, it's a grace saturated miracle that God saves any of us. Fair means no one is saved. And so some application as we think about this today. First, if you are outside of Christ, look at the mercy of God that would be providing a way for you to escape his judgment. If you are outside of Christ today, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Turn from your sin and call on the name of Jesus. This is how we can stand and we can wholeheartedly exclaim that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. We have to know that. We have to cling to that. That's how. But for us, church, do we see the grace that he lavished on us? If you struggle with this, the, the worldly concept of self-esteem, election should be a warm blanket on a cold night. God chose you before he created the world. This speaks to your identity, your being. It speaks to who you are. But second, church, How does this empower our evangelism and our work of the church? How much weight does this take off our shoulders that shouldn't be on our shoulders to begin with? It's the work of God. We are literally on a hunt for the elect. When we preach the word of God, we pray for that spark to draw those who are his to himself. So we preach the gospel to every single person without bias, without reservation, without even a thought. We send missionaries to the end of the earth, and we send we send out a signal for God's children to come to him. And when the gospel is preached, eventually they will respond. We do not get to know who is elect and who is not. Romans 9 is giving us a sneak peek behind the curtain here of how God works for his purposes. But church salvation belongs to the Lord. We pray. And boy, do we pray. We pray that God opens the eyes of the elect and they turn to him and be saved. Even those that we might not think are elect, even those that have rejected him for years, we need to keep being faithful to live as Christians in word and deed so that they will turn to him. Guys, you would not have recognized me before Christ. You would not have wanted to hang out with me. I guarantee that. You could look at that life and you could say, there is no way that guy's ever coming to Christ but God used every single thing in my path to draw me to himself. And that's the way it works. And so when we look at people and we pray for people, some of our family members, we agonize, we have to pray correctly. Author Jim Oreck says it this way, in hoping and praying for the salvation of your loved one, would you rather put the hope on on the possibility that your loved one will come to God on their own which is something the Bible declares to be impossible, or in the possibility that God will sovereignly bestow his grace on them. God saves, and God alone. And so we pray for God to save our lost friends and our lost loved ones. And we live lives that are legit, and we proclaim the gospel in word and deed wherever we can. Like Jesus said in the first sermon when he preached, the time is here, the kingdom is now. Repent and believe the gospel. The Bible, guys, is unquestionably God-centered. God has chosen people for salvation and judgment through Israel, through the patriarchs, through today in the church of Jesus, and that's how he gets glory. God's glory is seen, is displayed in electing some to salvation and some to judgment, and that is his right as creator and king of the world. And we struggle with this, but yet there is a part of this where it just has to well up in worship, because that is our God. Our God is so sovereign. Our God is so good. Our God is so merciful. Our God is so knowledgeable. There is nothing that is outside his knowledge or power. And let's pray that this difficult truth will be laid and impressed upon our souls, but also, more importantly, will bear fruit in our lives. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the bluntness of this word. This is difficult for us to think about and understand, Lord, some of us may be hearing this for the first time, and Lord, this is indeed a a peek behind the divine curtain of how you work salvation. And Father, we have done so much damage to this doctrine in the church. We have placed so much emphasis on ourselves, so much emphasis on ourselves that we contribute to salvation in some way, that we choose you in some way because of something inside us. Even the language of accepting you into our hearts, Lord, puts us in the driver's seat. And that is not the way that you say it in Romans 9. Lord, would you help us to think biblically on these things? Lord, would you also help us to think evangelistically with these things? As we go and as we live lives and as we we proclaim the depths of the mercies of God and Jesus Christ, that we would do so in a way that puts you at the center. That as, you, as we proclaim your freedom and your grace in Jesus, that the elect would respond as you have promised that they would, that you will lose none of whom the Father has given, us, given you. And Lord, would you build your kingdom? Would you be glorified as you do the work that only you can do in electing some to some, salvation and some to judgment? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.